You're listening to Find Your Voice, a podcast made in collaboration with community-backed independent for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel. We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the traditional land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Well, hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Find Your Voice. I'm Zoe Daniel and this is a podcast in which we discuss policy issues affecting Goldstein and the wider Australian community. Before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I sit, that is the Bunurung people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past and present. Yasmin Poole is an award-winning public speaker, writer, youth advocate and prominent advocate for girls' rights to be recognised around the world. Yasmin is chair of the Victorian Government's Youth Congress, representing over one million Australians and speaking at forums like APEC and the G20. She is also Plan International's National Ambassador, the Non-Executive Board Director of Oz Harvest and YWCA, a national feminist organisation that supported women and girls for 140 years. And in 2021, Yasmin was awarded Youth Influencer of the Year by the Martin Luther King Junior Centre. Hi, Yasmin. Hi, Zoe. Great to be with you. Thanks for being with us. Now, you've said that your vision is for Australia to become a global leader in intersectional policymaking with a parliament that truly reflects the diversity of our communities. What's the current state of diversity in the Australian parliament? Um, quite poor, actually, and that's perhaps putting it lightly. Um, you know, as a in my advocacy journey, it actually started with me as a young girl turning on the TV, looking at Question Time, and never seeing stories like mine represented. So for me, it was actually um, in 2014 when the, there was ISIS that was dominating the headlines, and we saw this really harmful and Islamophobic rhetoric coming out of Parliament, and you really saw quite starkly the lack of lived experience in that space, you know, people who are Muslim or people who have a connection to that community. And for me, with my mom, who's a Muslim migrant woman, I felt that in school, and I saw the impact of those kind of words um, in my life. So for me, I'm really on a mission to try to empower young women to feel like they can not only put their hand up for politics, but also enter into leadership spaces and to also change, I think, the narrative in these spaces too, that young women do have a place, especially in parliament. And after talking to so many young women, they are the ones that inspire me with their vision and their creativity and their passion and their experiences across spaces like education or employment, you name it, they have really interesting insights to share. So I think if we want a healthy democracy, it must reflect the diversity of our community and looking at what the multicultural society, which Australia is right now, looking at parliament shows that we're in a system right now that's deeply unhealthy and needs to be fixed. Just tell us a little bit about your cultural background and also what brought you to be taking this sort of leadership role. I and mean, obviously there's that sort of frustration that you talk about, but you could have not stepped up into this kind of advocacy position. I mean, it'd probably be a lot more calm if I didn't. Um, it's a sacrifice to do this work. And, you know, after talking to other advocates, we all agree, um, you, you know, this is something that we didn't really ask to go into, but out of a feeling of duty and obligation, that's what makes us stay in it. So for me, as a young Asian Australian um, girl at the time, that's what, I guess, drove me looking around me and realising that my stories just weren't reflected in spaces like the media and politics. And when I was given the opportunity to do that, 
it was really important that I brought the, the youth perspective. And I remember actually making that decision to speak up was the first time I was on Q&A. And I was 20 years old at the time. I had just gotten back from you know, APEC. It was my first ever forum. I'd really just kind of started to find my feet, but I was still trying to figure it out. And at the time, I wanted to be a diplomat. And I was well aware that you couldn't go on TV and start making, you know, um, political statements. You had to remain neutral. But when I was on that panel, they asked about the Safe Schools program. And there was a very conservative senator that was also on that panel and started saying, um, quite outrageous claims that homophobic bullying doesn't happen in schools. And I had graduated three years prior and I knew that was not the case. And I just felt myself listening and being so frustrated and also being like, I know that's not true. I've seen it with my own eyes. So I just like I open my mouth and suddenly I'm hearing myself directly responding to what he's saying and saying, you know, that is not true. You know, it's been several decades since you've been in high school and then speaking about it. And I just realized in that moment, there were kids watching that program. Many kids who are queer, parents um, who are queer or have um, you know, queer children. So having that harmful rhetoric and not responding to it creates further harm for people who haven't experienced that in terms of the narrative and, and people who've experienced that. So, uh, you know, why I couldn't remain silent because it wasn't just me. There were so many others out there that even a, maybe a small message um, to support them would have made the difference. And I take that approach in everything that I do because I realise if I don't bring it up, it might very well never be discussed. And especially when we're talking about those who are typically on the outskirts of these conversations. So that's what I always try to do to bring that intersectional lens in whatever space I'm working in. So speaking of diversity in the parliament, which was kind of where we started this conversation, it occurs to me that it it's a problematic stall because it will start to feed on itself in a sort of positive feedback loop once parliament becomes more diverse and therefore you'll start to get more diversity because it's become more diverse. But how do we get over this roadblock of total lack of diversity and what's causing that stall, do you think? I'm not entirely sure how to get over it because the reality is that parliament is a space of power, maybe the highest space of power. And if we don't put in infrastructure in place to create that diversity, there will always be gatekeeping and holding on to the status quo. And, you know, we, we saw that while, you know, white women were given the right to vote, um, you know, early into federation, it was women of colour and First Nations women that weren't. So we see the way that these power structures operate. And I don't think we can delude ourselves to think that in the current system, um, everything is fair and everything is based on merit. It's just not the case, including the way that we are even currently viewing you know, leadership. If you look at the cabinet, you know, you might see more women in the earlier stages, but what about women promoted to higher spaces of leadership? What about a female prime minister? And that's, I think, where you see the way that, you know, masculine um, white leadership norms are still framing how we understand and value leadership in this country. So I think political parties need to make a determined effort, and that can be through quotas or targets. I know some parties are very fearful of quotas, 
but to recognise the problem and to not turn away from that. And it's in that pre-selection process that's crucial. And, you know, there's been multiple stories now of diverse candidates being pushed um, aside, which is um, really disappointing. And, you know, I was speaking to actually young women through Plan International Australia last week, and they're seeing this, you know, they're, they're 16 and 17 years old, and they're telling me, I know that even if I try my hardest, it's a political party that can decide if I get to you know, run for politics because of my race and how I might be seen. And she's in high school. So those messages are already filtering down. So I really want to see parties recognize that urgency and not just gender diversity, you know, not just having more women in that space. Um, someone I was speaking to is non-binary. They're saying, well, I don't see myself there either. So across the spectrum from an intersectional view, so race, class, gender, all of these things, that's what makes it rich. And it's to me, it's not enough to have one person in the party who, for example, is a person of colour. That's not how you get that critical mass and that consensus. So to not just have one and tick the box, but to actually have meaningful, substantive diversity. And that's how you get the marginalised communities back into that main political conversation to be heard. Mm. I do wonder, you know, you talk about non-binary people. Uh, I know that I've talked to uh, people of different cultural backgrounds who have said, well, I'm not sure that I would even step into that space because my, you know, who I am is going to be sort of deployed against me in some sort of negative way. I mean, you've seen trans people being used as political footballs in various contexts by our parliament. You see very combative relationship between our government and China, for example, which is causing a lot of blowback for Chinese people in the community. You've seen allegations of sort of racial undertones in pre-selection processes in New South Wales. You know, it's sort of, even if you open the the way for people to step up, I wonder if there's a real disincentive for people stepping up because the point of difference is going to be weaponised <laughs> against them once they're even in the parliament. It's so true. And after speaking to those young women, I mean, I feel their fear. And what happened to Brittany Higgins was not an anomaly. It pointed to a um, quite sinister culture of abuse. And if you look from Julia Gillard to Brittany Higgins, a staffer, those things are not separate. They're interconnected, um, they are violent, and they are deeply sexist, uh, amongst other things, as you mentioned, with different marginalised groups. But I think in saying that, while there is that fear, I know that there are still very passionate and diverse people who want to run and who want to go for it. And that's why it's important to give them a platform because I was in a conference a couple of weeks ago and Maureen Faruqi went before me and she spoke very candidly about the racism that she experienced in and outside of parliament. She also spoke very candidly about the hate she received, but you could feel her strength and the reason why she continued to do it. And I looked at the crowd who are all young women of color and they like had stars in their eyes because they were so inspired that a, someone like that, a diverse woman, could be in that space and remain advocating despite everything she'd gone through. And that's the positive examples that give us strength. So for me, it's seeing like someone like AOC in the US and it's seeing though, despite what she's going through, she's really making a difference. And I hold those examples close. So that really helps me to continue on. And there will always be that awful abusive culture, but it's my hope that we get better people in politics that can help address this culture. And um, I guess inspire young Australians who are looking at them as examples. 
It's funny that you mentioned Maureen Faruqi, uh, Yasmin. I'm just reaching here on my desk. There you go, Maureen. There's a little uh, plug. <clears throat> it is important to inform ourselves, I think, you know, for, as me, as a, a white woman who's aspiring to be in parliament, that my experience of this, much as it's um, the campaign is not overtly positive, is going to be very different to someone from a, a more diverse cultural background and that, you know, the way people are treated and the level of agency that they have can be very different. Now, I want to ask you, Yasmin, you know, one of the barriers to more diversity in our parliament, I think, is the citizenship rules. Um, and there are various politicians of different stripes advocating for those to be loosened so that if you have dual citizenship, for example, you could uh, participate as a, a member of parliament. What do you think of that as a structural reform? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting reform and it, to me it makes sense. Um, it, it's happened in other countries and their parliament hasn't collapsed the reality is, is that we're in a very globalised world. We, we rely on migrants coming to Australia. We, we take pride in that. So in turn, it only makes sense, I think, to, to change that, given that there are so many people from all over the world coming here, building a life. And it's also important, you know, that we have not just people who have been in Australia for, you know, generations, but, you know, a first generation migrant, a second generation migrant. These are really, really valuable perspectives. And, you know, there are plenty of other checks that we can do to, um, you know, obviously um, ensure transparency and conflict of interest. Um, but, you know, I think around that reform, it, it would be really important. And there would be plenty of, I think, incredible people that don't run on that basis for, for whatever reason. So for me, I, I'm in favour of it. it. It makes sense given how diverse we are as a population. Now, you were one of 12 women, uh, prominent women, who launched the Safety, Respect, Equity campaign for gender equality, and that was some weeks ago now. What kind of response did you all get from that campaign and what does that say about where people's priorities lie in the lead-up to this election, do you think? Well, it was interesting. I mean, first of all, it was really, really incredible to meet those women and be with those women. For me, Brittany and Grace um, really drive my advocacy and they give me strength in hard times because I realise they're doing it too. And if I can do anything to help amplify their work and to support their work, I will do it. In terms of the reception, it was received really well on TikTok, interestingly, which has got plenty of people my age. I think it had something like two, over 200,000 views, which is really great. Um, it was shared well amongst corporate spaces because it was right before International Women's Day. I was asked quite a lot about it, which was good. Um, I didn't see that in politics, though. I didn't see the political um, response to it. It seemed like, you know, just another campaign video. What we were trying to articulate, though, is that what happened last year around March for Justice was not a blip in history. This is a momentum. This is a, something that is building and will only continue to grow during the federal election and afterwards. So I didn't see much of an uptake there, um, but I, I hope at least that it added to the momentum. And, you know, I really am hoping that people will be thinking about what happened last year when they go to vote and, you know, the very disappointing responses that we saw in some decision makers. So, um, you know, I'm really just hoping that that sticks. But I guess what that requires is just to keep talking about it and that's what I'll con continue to do. Mm, yeah, um, I find myself about to ask you the unanswerable question, which is, <laughs> uh, why do we keep talking about the same thing and knowing what we have to do over and over again and actually not doing it? You know, a lot of the uh, priorities on the, the list that were within that 
campaign video and that that campaign that was launched are sort of pretty self-evident and they all go to the sorts of behaviour that we've seen over recent years and the exposure of that behaviour perhaps is a better way of describing it because we know it's been happening for a long time. I mean, I just it's like what's the trigger for actual action? You know, we're talking about diversity in Parliament. So, again, if we go right back to the beginning of that, is that the only way that we're going to actually move the needle in a structural sense? Well, I guess looking at the entire structure, of course, it's also people and voters on the ground demanding these things. I never thought as a young person that really what we were saying on the ground made much of a difference until I was chatting with, chatting with a politician and she mentioned, um, you know, they're looking at a proposed project and she said, oh, I haven't received many calls about this. And I went, oh, they actually take that into account. So I think that keeping that pressure is really important and that's something that we can all do in our own capacity through social media or petitions or whatnot. But I still think it goes back to the fact that we need more people with that experience in politics. And I remember when everything happened, when Brittany stepped forward, and you just saw there were no young women in the space that could speak about what it's like to experience that, you know, at our age. And I recognise that there are older women too. But even, you know, on the left, I saw politicians, you know, they had this thing about, you know, having their babies in parliament to try to connect that to much for justice. And I'm thinking that's really not what we're talking about. We're talking about you know, abuse and violence, not just that motherhood trope. So I think really we need, that's where it comes back to diversity for me. But I think across the ground, it's not just that, it's at schools, it's at universities, um, you know, it's it's wherever we're operating to be having these frank and honest conversations about things like sexual assault and harassment. And, you know, while I can feel frustrated, I was, I was recently inducted into the Victorian Honour Roll of Women. And there was the oldest inductee there that year, who was 92 years old and a feminist advocate working in, who'd worked in like equal pay for labour between men and women. And, you know, I saw her and all the work she has done and it would be a disservice to women like her to turn away and say it doesn't matter because she's put in so much of her life into trying to address this problem. And I asked her, you know, why is it still happening? Why are we seeing this wave and this momentum and then, you know, back to it dissipating again? And she said, I think the men need to hold a mirror to themselves and realise the problems going on with what men are doing. And it's very true. So this cannot just be just women advocating for ourselves. We need men across spaces to take up that cause. And I think that's where the action isn't happening because there are plenty of men in these spaces that could do more and could be raising that in the conversation just because they're not women doesn't mean they can't raise these problems and amplify them. So I think that unity and uh, is, is really essential here when it comes to creating change for women and um, different marginalised groups too. I want to go to young people for a moment just before I let you go. It, it's interesting. I was talking to my son yesterday who's 15 and he said, oh, seems young people are getting a lot more focused this election. A lot of politicians and um, independents perhaps but also the broader larger parties are talking about young people or focused on young people, which is obviously a good thing. But do you, do you get a, a sense that young people's voices and concerns are being heard more this time around? And what do you think the underlying reason for that might be? I'm not quite sure. Um, I'm not sure if they are being heard more this time around. I, I certainly think around climate change, which is great, I mean, it's so clear the generational connection to climate change. Um, but I also notice we're often used as a tool of hope 
and without actually having young people in this space. So I just watched Scott Morrison's first campaign video right before the election was announced. And he was saying, you know, I went to a, a school and half of the young people there wanted to run a small business and it was seen as a sign of hope. And I'm thinking, but what have you done for young people? What have you seen, wanted to engage any young people in your party? Are you running any young people? So I don't want us to be used as a kind of symbolic tool. We are a group of people who are intensely affected by things like the pandemic and climate change, like I mentioned, and also things like sexual harassment and violence. We're the most likely group of all generations, of all ages right now to experience that. Um, so, you know, we might be mentioned, but it's my hope that parties are actively consulting with young people to, to get their perspective. And that's why I'm calling for things like a federal youth advisory board in parliament. You know, even if they're not actively elected, to be constantly bringing young people to give their insights on policy. And that's really powerful. So I, I want to see that actual valuing of our voices, not just seen as kind of a political tool to argue about or try, try to inspire hope or anger. I want us to be brought into this space as well. Mm. And if you're listening to or watching this podcast and you're interested in the young people's involvement in my campaign, you can go and have a look at our Gen Zoe page. We have some amazing young people who have really been stepping up and participating in the campaign and, and engaging and getting their friends involved, which is extremely exciting. I did want to ask you before I let you go, um, Yasmin, about integrity in young people. When I talk to, to people in the electorate of Goldstein, it seems to me that the the sort of umbrella issue this electorate is integrity and accountability. It tends to be a little different across age demographics, though. Older people go straight to the integrity issue, whereas younger people are often really concerned about climate and things like housing affordability and refugees and, and mental health and other things. Do you think the issue of integrity and accountability in politics is on the radar of that younger demographic? It absolutely is on the radar. And I think we just don't use the word integrity, but that is what we're saying. So when we think, say things like diversity and inclusion or respect and fairness, we're all pointing towards integrity. We want politicians to do the right thing. And after speaking to many young women, they've made it clear they don't like the very adversarial two-party nature of politics. They hate the fact that it's all about a fight and the argument and trying to win rather than actually working together to try to create something that's constructive and useful. And many, many people have expressed that to me. So I absolutely think integrity is part of it. It's just maybe not exactly the words that we use, um, but we see how our politicians, I mean, I think many young people are very disappointed and many feel like politicians just don't care. So they don't, so they don't care to engage because they think, well, what's the point? And I get that frustration because, you know, like, again, we see young people used as a tool of hope, but not actually, um, given the legitimacy of a voting block in which which we are. So we're, I think we're definitely on board with that. And if we want to inspire generations of people to enter into politics, we need to clean it up and we need to make it to establish that integrity and to restore that faith and, and get better people in this space that can advocate for Australians. Yasmin Poole has been our guest today, this amazing young woman. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Find Your Voice. We really appreciate your insights, Yasmin. Sorry. You can learn more about Zoe, her policies, and how you can support this grassroots campaign at zoedaniel.com.au. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and share with your family and friends. 
every bit of support matters. This podcast is authorised by Zoe Daniel, Level 1, 9-214, Bay Street, Brighton, Victoria.